0: and uh and the nursery or well, these these little ones two years old that are learning today that god made you and god loves you and god wants to save you lord i pray that you would just use your word no matter how it's delivered in our hearts and lives and we do stop right now and pray for our easter weekend lord we want that to be a time where believers are edified and we worship to the fullest and it's and it's just so enjoyable to praise you and to think about the resurrection, but Lord, we also, uh, we want it to be a time where people that don't know you are evangelized and they enter into a relationship with you. So would you use us as we share your good news, as we invite people to come and see, Lord, would you bless our efforts uh, this season as we approach Easter. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, every night at uh, dinner, our family, not every night, but just about every night, we play a game with our little kids called Hilo Buffalo. Someone in our group, I can't remember exactly who, but someone in our group told us they played this at their family dinner table, and we thought, man, that's a great idea. So we, about a year or so ago, took it, and we played all the time. And Hilo Buffalo is a game of questions. You go around the table, and you start by asking, what was your high from the day? And so with my kids, you know, Deacon's too little. He doesn't understand. He's, he's a year and a half. Cruz is three. He, Whatever he Whatever happened most recently that he liked, that's what he says. It doesn't have to be the best thing in the day. If he had a graham cracker 30 seconds prior, then his high is the graham cracker, okay? Willow, she's uh, four, and she's more emotional and relational. So her her high is typically a relationship. It's normally something like I love mom. And it's like, that wasn't really what we were asking, but we'll take it. It's fine. Brennan's almost seven, so he's able to compute the day, kind of think about it. Here was my favorite thing from the day. So we do our high, then we ask, what was your low? What was the worst thing about today? Or what kind of was a a bummer today? And then we ask, what's your buffalo? And buffalo just stands for random. Buffalo is anything you want to say and anything you want to ask. So yesterday, Brennan's was. I know the president on every coin, you know. If you, you name the penny, the nickel, I can tell you the president. That was his random thing you wanted to talk about. So we play this game. And what we've found is, is what you've found as well in your own relationships, that the interchange of questions helps you get to know people, helps those, those relationships be established in a greater way. And what we've been studying for the last couple weeks and the next couple weeks up until Easter is this idea that there are places in the Bible where God has this interchange of questions, where God steps onto the scene and he wants to ask questions of his people. And the idea there, at at big picture, is that God wants to have a relationship with us. God cares about us. God cares what's going on in our hearts and our lives, and he wants to steer us and guide us, which is a beautiful thing, just big picture, that it goes against the idea of deism the deism is that God made the world and then he just kind of steps back and he lets the world exist, but he's not involved in the world. And when you see God come to his people and begin to ask them questions about what they're doing, about what they're thinking, about what they're feeling, what you find is that God's involved, that God cares, that God wants us to grow. He wants that those relationships to develop. And today we see in Jonah chapter number four, this conversation between God and Jonah and It includes three different questions. Uh, there's, it's only 11 verses, very short, but there's three different questions that God asked Jonah, and they're so revelatory and so helpful, so much so that years ago, I, three or four years ago, I can't remember exactly, we preached for the book of Jonah. I think we spent like three or four weeks on this chapter. I'm not going to do that to you today, but we are going to get a survey of it and try to understand some of the big picture. So in case you don't know the story of Jonah, let me just give you the cliff note version. Jonah is a Jewish prophet who God calls to go to a city called Nineveh to tell them to repent of their evil ways or else judgment's coming. Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh, and he runs from this task. He does not want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. You say, why does that matter? Assyria is the, is the powerhouse of that day. They are the country that has the power, and they are known for being violent In brutal. Okay, when you think of Syria, think drug cartel. Think people who wanted their reputation to be, we are so so violent and so brutal that you don't even want to mess with us, and you will just lay down and die without even trying to get into it with us. That's these people. And when God tells Jonah to go there, he's calling Jonah to go to the archenemy, the people that he does not want to go to at all. This would be like, to put it in modern day, this would be as though God went, went to a Jewish man and called him to go to, to Nazi Germany to uh, evangelize or tell them of God's love. It would be like God coming to a black preacher and saying, go to the Jim Crow South and evangelize them. It would be like God coming to you maybe the day after 9-11 and saying, I want you to go to Iran and tell the people of, of my love. This is not something that would have been natural for Jonah to want to do. So he doesn't. He runs. And God pursues him, God God chases him down, he wins him back via a whale, he puts him back on mission. Jonah does go to Nineveh, he preaches a very short sermon, but the Ninevites respond, they repent, they lament, and they say that we do have wickedness, And that's where you pick the story up in chapter four, verse number one. The end of chapter three is this great moment where you're like, hip, hip, hooray, you know? (laughs) God worked and these people are repenting of their wickedness, you know, story's over and, and it's not at all. The heart of Jonah is right here in chapter four and really it centers around these questions. So look at verse number one. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. So what displeased him? Why was he angry? The fact that the Lord would say, I'm no longer going to give Nineveh judgment. I actually will spare you because you've repented. That's what makes Jonah angry. Verse number two, he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and you're merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So here's Jonah in his anger. What does he do? He prays. But not just any prayer. Jonah balls out God for being God. And and he's mad at him. And Jonah ends up saying, God, just kill me. He's suicidal. He's irrational. He's completely inward focused. And his calculation would be, it's just better if I'm dead, right? He invokes divine euthanasia. God, just kill me. Verse number four, then the Lord said, and here's the question, doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, are you you okay to be angry like this? We don't get a response here. It continues, verse five. So Jonah went outside of the city. He sat on the east side of the city, and there he made him a booth, and he sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. So He basically goes and he pouts. He sits outside the city, and he says, I'm just going to wait and see what happens. Maybe they change their mind. Maybe they pick up their swords again or something, and, you know, maybe God will rain down punishment on them after all. Verse 6, the Lord prepared a gourd, and it made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief, so Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. So God gives him shade. He's glad. Verse 7 God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, and it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted, and he wished himself to die. And he said, It's better for me to die than to live. So you can already see the emotional volatility of this man. Jonah is very angry in turn, irrational and suicidal. Then the gourd comes. He's very happy now. Then the gourd goes away, so he's back to being angry, and he's back to being emotional and suicidal again. And, and God says to Jonah again in verse number nine, I mean, Jonah is, is absurd or blinded to the absurdity of his statements. He's, he's there making these outrageous claims, completely irrational, and God comes to him again with a question. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And Jonah said, he answers this time, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Yes, I do. I am just fine, just the way I am. Verse number 10 and 11. This is the heart of the whole book of Jonah. The heart of the book is not run from God and he'll swallow you with a well. Beware. Although there's application there. The heart is this. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow. It came up in a night and it perished in a night. Jonah this gourd you didn't make it I made it you didn't create this thing it's 24 hour wonder gourd that just there and gone right it's not like a family heirloom it's not like you've had it for a long time you you have pity on this thing should not I spare Nineveh the great city where are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left and also much cattle Jonah you have pity there should not I have pity here I want us to consider these 11 verses, and especially these three questions this morning, and I want us just to look at Jonah's anger, Jonah's indifference, and then Jonah's opposite. So let's start with Jonah's anger. This is very heavy in the text, right? Verse number one, it tells you that Jonah is exceedingly displeased, that Jonah is very angry. Two of the questions center around, Jonah, you okay to be angry? Jonah, you okay to be angry for the gourd? So his anger is very prevalent and rooted in, in this idea of Jonah being angry, is that Jonah thinks that God is making a mistake. The, the primary reason he's angry is because Jonah thinks, God, this is not the way that it should go down. God, what, what you're doing right now ticks me off. The fact that you would show mercy to Nineveh, the fact that you would spare them, that you would not give them wrath, it, it, it angers me. So, here's Jonah, blood boiling, fist clenched, jaw tightened, blood pressure elevated, muscles tensed. Why? Because he's displeased with what God is doing. He's displeased that God would actually show mercy and grace to these people, and Jonah wants wrath to stay. Jonah wants judgment to stay. Now, sadly, what Jonah is experiencing here is not entirely unique to Jonah. You see this in other places in the scripture, you see this even in our own lives sometimes. You see this in the apostles, uh, James and John, very clearly in the gospel of Luke. When Jesus goes to Samaria and the people of Samaria do not receive Jesus, James and John, good guys, the apostles, they know Jesus. I mean, John wrote John's gospel and and other books of the Bible. And here's what they say to Jesus in Luke chapter number 9. When Samaria won't turn to Jesus, they say, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? You know what their heart is? Lord, they're not helping us, so kill them. Go Elijah on their heads. Fire from heaven, extra crispy. Just, just get it done. And what does Jesus say to them? Jesus turned and he rebukes them, right? He rebukes them in verse 55. He said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went into another village. So here's Jesus that turns and he says, Excuse me, you, you are not thinking the way that I think. Your heart is not my heart. Your spirit is not my spirit. You are acting opposite of me. You're, you're, you're wanting condemnation. You're wanting judgment. You're wanting just, just fry them up, Jesus. And, and that's not me. I'm here to save. I'm not here to, to just get my revenge on these people. How is that possible, okay? How is it possible that Jonah, James, John, God's people, recipients of God's grace, would desire the condemnation of others, right? How is it possible that people that experience God's love and mercy and grace and know how good it is? And that's Jonah, Jonah chapter number 2. Jonah had to say, God, I'm wrong. God, you're right. God, I need your salvation. Get me out of this fish. He had to say that. How could he experience this? How could James and John experience Jesus but still deep down desire the condemnation of others and not just deep down but hide it from everybody, literally express it and it comes out of them? I would contend that the primary way that that happens is you just forget how deeply God's forgiven you and you forget how messed up you are. It happens when you start to play this comparison game that you know what, God, yeah, I I mean, I did need your mercy and your grace and I needed you to be slow to anger with me because I'm a knucklehead sometimes, but I mean, I'm not like them. I mean, they are—they really deserve what's coming to them, so give it to them, God. Rain down the fire, give them judgment, don't, don't show them mercy, right? This happens when we start to make gradations of wickedness in our mind, and we do this all the time, where we say, okay, God, 1 to 10 scale, 10 being perfect, I'm not a 10, I mean, I'm not perfect, like, I don't know, I'm a solid 8. Like, I try, I go to church, like, I read my Bible, but I mean, I mess up and I'm wrong, I'm okay. But them like, he is a schmuck. He's a three, God. That, that guy, if you saw how he treated his wife, if you saw what he did, if you knew how he did business deals, I wouldn't trust that guy if my life depended on it. That, no way, God, he's, yeah, get him, get them. That's how it happens. And this is where Jonah's at. Jonah's in this spot where he needed God's mercy and grace, and he knows what it's like to experience it, but he doesn't want it to go to other people. And the problem with me versus them, I'm okay, they're a schmuck, the problem with that is that when you compare ourselves amongst ourselves, the Bible says it's not wise, it's not good. What we're supposed to do is look at ourselves and then look at the holiness of God and see that there's a mile gap no matter who you are. No matter if you call yourself an eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, don't matter. There, there is a big gap between you and God. And all of a sudden there's this flattening effect that happens on all of humanity where everybody is wrong and everybody deserves condemnation and everybody deserves judgment because everybody has sinned and everybody falls short and we all need it. We all, we all need his mercy and we all need his grace. All of us do. And Jonah, he's he's not there. But the irony of it all. Is that he does know God. Right? Like he knows about God. He he knew God so well that he called it. He said in verse number two God, I didn't want to come, not because I thought they would kill me, not because I was scared of them. I didn't want to come because I, I knew it. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you had great kindness in your heart. I knew you were just going to let them off the hook if they repented, God. That's why I didn't want to come. So he, and he's right. That is God. He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. That is the heart of God. And here's this man who has the right theology, but he has the wrong heart, right? In this moment, you find something that, that should at least scare you. That it is possible to know God's word without knowing his heart. It's possible for you to know the word of God and who he is and have all your little theological ducks lined up in a row, but to not get his heart. And before you say, oh, shame on Jonah, know that we do this sometimes too. And we shouldn't. I've met a whole lot of people that would say, shame on that guy. Jonah is a piece of work. But Lord, all the Muslim countries, nuke them. Ever heard a Christian say that? I ha- Am I the only one? Just, just, just flatten them. What is that? That's the heart of Jonah, is what that is. That's not the heart of God. It, it is very possible for you to sing, "Praise the Lord, His mercy is more," and then turn around and spew vitriol and hatred at the political person that you don't like and their ideology and how they're ruining the country. And there's a special place reserved in hell for them. I'll tell you what, buddy. That's possible, right? But that's not okay. It's not okay to have that heart. It's very possible for you, to, for you to know God's love and his forgiveness and that he's pardoned you and that he can restore anyone no matter who they are of what they've done and for you to celebrate that and for you to think that's awesome but then for you to want church to be this place that is exclusively for, for moralistic, buttoned down, nice little tidy people but not want your church to be a place where other people can come who really need, I mean, I, we want people to come but like not them. That happens in churches all the time, does it not? And it shouldn't, it shouldn't. Because that's not the heart of God. It's possible to know theology and to say, yeah, we'd love people to be saved at Easter, but only a certain type of person. And I know you wouldn't say it in those words, but it's possible for our heart to manifest those things and to actually act in those ways. You see this in the story of the prodigal son, remember that story? The, the boy who who shames dad, disrespects him, leaves, spends his substance on riotous living, comes back to dad. Dad welcomes him, but the story's not over. He welcomes him and has a banquet. And then the older brother, the good one, right? The good little boy who stayed home and kept all the rules, the self-righteous one. He's the one that comes in and says, What's, what why is there a party? What's the music? What's happening? Oh, your younger brother, he came home. We're, we're happy about it. Like he, he came back to his senses. He repented. He's, he's back. And what does the older brother do? The Bible says he is angry and he will not go in. He's angry about it. Angry that he repented. Angry that the the heart of the Father would be to love and to accept and and to forgive. He's angry about that. Destructive self-righteousness is what that is. That's where Jonah's at. That's where if, if I'm not careful, if you're not careful, you can find yourself there at many points in time. And it should not be. It should not be. But then you find this question, not just what are you angry about in general of Nineveh and what's happening there, but verse number nine is this more specific, what are you angry about with a gourd? It, it really shifts the text away from, for a moment, away from big picture what God is doing in Nineveh and how his heart of grace and mercy is there, and it shifts the text more to Jonah's personal circumstances. But now Jonah had the shade, he had this gore, the delight, he was happy about it, and then God takes that away. So now personally, what's happening to him, now he's angry about that as well. And there's a a lot I could say here. We could spend a a whole sermon very easily. But the bottom line of what you would learn from this is that when Jonah says, it's okay for me to be angry that you took this away from me, was wrong. It was not okay for him to be angry, nor is it okay for us to ever be filled with anger and wrath and and hatefulness that's not supposed to be the case for christians and it's easy for us to find ourselves in jonah moment saying oh yeah it's fine though it's fine it's easy for us to justify our anger the most common one that at least i hear from people is, well well jesus was angry sometimes right he wasn't you know he had an emotional spectrum as well and jesus had righteous indignation jesus he went to the temple and he threw over the the money changers tables did he not wasn't he upset in that moment but I don't, I don't know if you've read that story, but best I know, I never read the part that said, and go and do thou likewise, brother table thrower. I, I never saw that. I, I never saw the, oh, they're wrong, so just put them on blast and obliterate them verse. I, I didn't see that one. I'm sure if Jesus starts an anger ministry that you'll be his choice servant and, and he'll enlist you. But until that happens, that's not okay. The Bible actually teaches to the opposite, that we, according to Colossians and Ephesians both, that we actually should put off anger and wrath and malice, that that should not be part of our lives, but the opposite should be true, that we should have the fruits of the Spirit, which actually don't contain anger and wrath and malice. Those fruits of the Spirit are love and joy and peace and gentleness, right, right? We, we are way, way too good at justifying our anger. Let me, let me talk to the, to the guys for a minute. I understand that females can struggle with anger too, but in my personal experience, it's more of a guy thing, generally. Okay? I know that you're the dad. I know that you're the authority. And I know that they sometimes disrespect you, and they don't recognize your authority, and they don't obey. But that is not a green light for you to just throw flames at them they're your child the one that you're supposed to nurture in the admonition of the lord the the one that you're supposed to not provoke to wrath the one that you're supposed to care for and have have a heart for not just lay the hammer down on them because they didn't do what they were supposed to do I understand that God set up an authority structure inside of the home and that you as a man should lead and that she should be willing to follow. whole different sermon. But I understand that's the way that that God set that up. But if she doesn't or she's unwilling or she says this to you, you do not have the, the green light now to just go be angry and be justified in it. You don't get to now turn up the volume, power up. You always, you're just like your mother, You don't get to do that. It's not okay. It's not okay to start to to push that anger even to the physical realm and start to use that you're bigger and that you're stronger to grab the wrist or to now to, to put that anger forth. That's not okay. Young men in the room who don't have kids and don't have wives, it's not okay for you to use anger as a tool. I'd be the first to confess it was probably I don't know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade for me, I used anger as a tool in sports all the time, and I should not have. It 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 started a domino effect that I still wrestle with in many ways to this day. That before the game, I don't know anyone who listens to Jesus Love Me before they go play sports, okay, I'll be honest. I don't know anyone who has that You to go in. Generally, it's a little more upbeat than that. And I don't even think it's wrong to have something upbeat, but I do think that it's very problematic to start to put things into your ears to put your frame of mind in a place of anger because you just play better from anger. That was me. I played better when I was mad. I just did. I could produce more points and grab more rebounds when I was mad, but it wasn't healthy. It it began to teach me to try to use anger as a tool, which isn't good. Someone once said very wisely that anger is one letter away from danger, and that's the truth. When you, when, you, when you begin to manifest anger, even as Jonah did here, just over your circumstances or what they did or what happened, and all of a sudden it, it ticks you off, it's not okay. It's not okay. And God asked Jonah, Jonah, is this right? He's trying to get him to think. Jonah, stop, think. Is this right? And Jonah, he's not thinking. He's, he's so illogical, he just says, kill me. <laughs> He's, he's, his anger has gotten the better of him to the nth degree. But God says, don't do that. Don't do that. But then you find right after Jonah's anger, really the heart of the text is Jonah's indifference. You find in verses 10 and 11, I want to read them together with you again. Then said the Lord, Jonah, you've had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and a perished in a night. Should not I, God, spare Nineveh, the great city? We're no more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left. Meaning we know there's at least 120,000 people. Some think that means there's 120,000 babies who literally don't know right from left. Some think that means there's 120,000 that they just, they really don't understand morality the way that they should. I don't know. Frankly, I don't even care that much. What I do know is that there's tens and tens of thousands of people. That's God's point. And not only people, he does say, and there's also some livestock. There's some cattle, too. That's what their economy's based off of. I mean, you're asking me, not just, you're asking me to ruin them, to, to ruin everything about them and their city. And here is this, this place in Scripture where God not only wants to try to teach us about himself and his own heart, but wants to try to help us see our, see our hearts. And he's trying to help Jonah see where he's at as God, but where Jonah is at as a person. And the stars begin to align finally after four chapters of this book where Jonah can see the heart of God and hopefully start to love his enemies and to care for them as people and to want what's best for them. Because inside of Jonah, there's no love. There's just condemnation. There's, there's, there's no heart of mercy and grace. But there is in the heart of God. And he's wanting Jonah to see that, that he has compassion. But he, want, he wants redemption to happen. And think about what this is saying. This, this is such a powerful, powerful question. Jonah, you have pity on a plant. One measly 24-hour-old plant. You have pity. I can't have pity on 120,000 people. I can't have pity even on the cattle or the livestock. Jonah, do you see the Disconnect. Do you see what concerns you and what concerns me? Do you see what you're asking when you ask me to destroy them? And when it's all said and done, Jonah's concerns do not reflect God's concerns. And God is trying to create alignment in this man's heart. And what he's saying, very simply, is Jonah, do you know what I'm concerned about? I'm, I'm concerned about this generation of people. Jonah, I'm concerned about the people who are lost. I'm concerned about the people who are broken. I'm concerned about the people who need my mercy and my grace. What are you concerned about, Jonah? Gord. Me. I'm hot. That's where he's at. And and when you understand that, you understand that this isn't far from where we live sometimes. That what concerns us and what concerns God oftentimes is not the same right it'd be very appropriate to take this question and to flip it and to say Mark I'm God asking you Mark what concerns you well it's springtime and my grass is really on my mind right now I've I overseeded I did mushroom compost last fall and it came in pretty good I'm pretty happy with where it's at right now but it's not like it's kind of like a yellowy green you know it's not like green green like it's not like a deep green i want the rich green but it's like a yellow so i need to i mean should i fertilize myself or show what treatment plan should i use maybe i should call through companies and see what they would offer maybe, before i know it i'm walking into those like this looking for grass seed looking for fertilizer meanwhile there are people all around me who need god right before i know it my week is eaten up. And, and if, I, if I'm honest, I stop and I think I had more mental bandwidth given to grass and that is not as green as I want it to be than I did that there are people that live in my orbit that need Jesus, who, who are broken, who are hurting, who go to sleep with, with no peace and they don't know God. Like that's messed up, right? For me, at least, that's messed up. The fact that my concerns on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis would, would begin to crowd out what really is the heart of God to reach a generation of people. I, I, would, I would implore you to ask yourself the same question Then when God comes to you and tells you, just like he did Jonah, I'm concerned about this generation of people. I'm concerned about people who don't know me. I'm concerned about showing my mercy and my grace to them and having them in a relationship with me. I'm concerned about that. What are you concerned about? Are you concerned about the people that you work with? Are you concerned about the people down the street? Are you concerned about, about your family? Are you concerned about your mother-in-law? I know you are, but in a different way. Do you want to, do you want to, to reach them? Do, are you concerned about teenagers? Are you concerned about single moms or kids in foster homes or just getting the gospel to the nation's? If we talk about, hey, there's a missionary, we, we support them monthly for eight years now in Thailand, and we're going to try to give them some extra money to help them have a Bible institute to read some people in Thailand that don't know Jesus, does that resonate? Does that click? Does that ring the bell at all? It should, it should, because God's concerned about those people. God's concerned about those that, that are in your orbit. We just, we gave you this little, you know, prayer card here for, for Easter, it's a simple little thing. But if you got this and you were like, yeah, uh, not filling that out. If there's no one that you have that's on your heart, that's on your mind, that you're praying for, that you'd like to come to hear the gospel, that you'd like to come and be closer to God, if there's no—I'm not saying that you have to fill out a card to be concerned about people. But I am saying if, if, this, if this came across your plate today and, like, you completely dismissed it and there was, there was no connection there at all, man, that's problematic that, that might be an indicator that your heart and your concern is not where God's heart and God's concern is to reach a generation of people. This, this is the simplest thing in the world. I, I hope that you have, like, you only give me three spaces. I need 300. I, I hope that there are people that you, that you legit pray for, that you want to share the gospel with, that you're burdened about. This, this is something that should concern you. What are you concerned about? Well, my kid only got 17 minutes of playing time in the game. They should have at least got 19. And before you know it, you spend the majority of your week emailing Coach, giving him a piece of your mind, calling all the other parents on the team to let them know how bad Coach is too, worked up over two minutes of playing time and now practicing dribbling drills for eight hours a day. Instead Instead of people that need Jesus, I'm not saying don't play basketball. I'm not saying don't practice your dribbling. I am saying, though, what's where are our concerns? Where, where is our heart? God asked Jonas some questions that were valid questions, that were perfect questions. I think that it would be fitting for me to ask you some questions, okay? What are you concerned about? Why are you so apathetic? Why are you indifferent? Why, why do you... Why do you find yourself being so noncommittal to the things of God? Why are you so busy that you crowd out what God really wants? Why is it every time you're presented with an opportunity to do something, to invest some extra time, to serve in a particular way, to invest some extra money, to go on a mission trip, that you dismiss it and you automatically shift your priority and your focus and your time and your energy to to things that are not gospel-centric? Why do you talk yourself out of it all the time? Why do you not commit why do you see the video or the brochure or the pitch or whatever it is and you just you just won't jump in? Why do you why do you keep doing that? Why do you why do you refuse to have your, your life and schedule and money intersect with the purposes of God in a meaningful strategic way? I think that's a fair question. If that's you, why? Why? We shouldn't be indifferent. We shouldn't be angry yeah there's application there but we shouldn't be indifferent what god what concerns god should concern us let me take a few minutes and then on a high note i know that the sermon as a whole has been relatively heavy okay you see jonah's anger you see his indifference but there is a lot of beauty in this text and that's where you find jonah's opposite so immediately in the text you find that the opposite of jonah is actually god himself right god is the protagonist jonah is the antagonist of the story we spend a lot of time talking about the antagonist jonah but oftentimes very little time talking about god the protagonist and how beautiful it is that jonah is right that god is gracious that god is merciful that god is slow to anger and of great kindness you know that's a beautiful beautiful thing but you also find beyond this story even just in the gospel you find jesus being the opposite of jonah right because you have In this, at its core, Jonah is this man who goes outside the city that could have killed him, and he goes outside the the city to to condemn it. Jesus is this man that is drugged outside the city, the city that he wept over, and he dies for its salvation, not its condemnation, right? Jesus is the man who will go outside the city for us, to save us. But even beyond Even beyond God, even beyond the gospel itself, I have to recognize, and I would at least like to give some credit where credit is is due, that there are a lot of opposites of Jonah in this room, and I know that. I am well, well aware that the only reason that I am standing here today preaching to you and there's this building and these chairs and kids are being ministered to down the hall and and Easter will happen and, and we'll do our best to serve our community and we'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars giving away to missionaries and to projects this year. I'm well aware the only way that that even comes close to happening is if there are Jonah's opposites right here. And I know that is the case. Not not all of us, but I'm aware that, that many right here, you, you are people that your concerns are in line with the con- concerns of God. Maybe not 100%, but by and large. You do your best to have your life, to have your schedule, to have your money intersect with the purposes of God in a meaningful way. You want to make a difference, right? And we should celebrate that and recognize that and spend a moment this morning just to say that that's awesome. It is awesome when a group of people get together and decide collectively that they're not going to sin the sin of Jonah and they're not going to make their religion all about themselves and not about reaching other people. That's a beautiful thing when people get together and say, no, it's not just gonna be all about me, that you know what, God saves me and God forgives me and I enjoy his grace and I get a home in heaven and I get a church to go to and a comfortable chair and Johnny will get the good seat prize and and I hope that I have a good parking space and give me the promotion, God, help me, bless me, help me, bless me, help me, bless me. It's a beautiful thing when people recognize that it's not all about them, but there are others that need the grace and the mercy of God and, and want to go reach them. And many of you have gone past that, is what I'm saying. You've gone past that, and that's awesome. Stay there. But not all of you, okay? Let's be honest. Not all. If you have, hats off to you. If you haven't, think about it. I know you try to be good. I know you try to be moral. I know you try to live a good life. I know you come to church. I know you're even grateful You're grateful that those people serve and and help your kids and those people invest of themselves and those people inconvenience themselves and those people give money. You're you're grateful. You're not ungrateful. You're grateful for it. You even are are concerned sometimes. Your heart gets stirred or you hear a sermon like this. You think I should do something and you get pushed a little bit to go do something more for God and to have your your life be on mission and and about the, the purposes of God. But you just don't do much about it when push comes to shove. On a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, even, there's just very little of your time or energy or money that really is trying to intersect with the purposes of God. And if that's you, be more than grateful for the other people that do it. Be more than grateful that God is Jonah's opposite, that Jesus is Jonah's opposite, and that he dies for you. Choose to actually not sin the sin of Jonah. Choose to tell God, God, I'm yours whatever I got, my life, my time, whatever I got, use it. Put me on mission. I don't know how. I'd, I'd, it, I'm scared. I'm intimidated by it a little bit. But Lord, I, I want to be used in that way. Here's a great question to ask yourself. If every person who sat around you right here in this room, or is tuning in on a live stream right now, if all the, the family of Harvest Baptist Church, if their Christian life was like yours, what kind of church would we have? If 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 everybody was like you in your Christian life and how you pursue the purposes of God and we would make little to no impact, then you know there's a problem, right? It should be that we want our lives to actually count for the Lord and reach other people. That's the way it should be. Because this isn't, this isn't a unique text in that God said this to Jonah and that's the end. This, this is all through the scriptures. Jesus echoed this sentiment extremely just profound and blunt when he said more or less that the heart of God hasn't changed. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to say that which is lost, right? This is why I'm here. I'm not here to call down fire on them and condemn them and and burn them up. I'm here to save them and to seek them. So if, if the heart of God hasn't changed that he wants to reach broken and lost people, then let's make his heart our heart, right? Not just in missions month when it's October and we talk about missionaries and giving to missions, like outside of October. Not just on Easter when there's a push and there's Easter weekend and people will be more receptive to an invite. Like all the time, let's make his heart our heart. Let's be burdened for people. Let's reach them. Let's do our best to have our lives intersect with the purposes of God in in meaningful, strategic ways. Pray with me if you would. Father, we stop for a moment to take Jonah chapter number four and try to apply it to our lives. And I ask that you would help us in this. Lord, I pray if... um, if there's a heartbeat or an undercurrent in our church of certain people should be excluded from the gospel or really who cares about them, you know, they're they're that type of person. They're Muslim. They're not my political ideology. Lord, I pray that we would repent of that and lay it down and that that just not, would not be a thing. Lord, I pray that we would wrestle even with our anger on a very personal, practical level. But probably above all else, Father, I pray that what concerns you would concern us. I pray that we would not be a group of people, a church family, that it's just us, that it's inward focus, that it's my gourd and I'm hot, but that we would be concerned about the 120,000 souls, that we would want your grace and mercy to, to have no borders and to get to as many people as possible. Lord, use us in this as we continue to try to put our money where our mouth is and invest in this and invest in mission.